Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. University workers went on strike last week to demand better working conditions and increased pay rates for staff. The National Tertiary Education Union's campaign comes after revelations of systemic wage theft across the sector, with universities backpaying around $100 million in stolen wages. Negotiations on enterprise bargaining agreements have stalled at multiple universities, and some NTEU branches have threatened open-ended strike action if a deal can't be reached. Ben Schneiders is an investigative journalist with The Age. He keeps a close eye on all things industrial relations and recently penned a couple of articles on this very issue. Ben, it's great to have you back on the show. Welcome. Yeah, thanks, John. Thanks for having me. Our pleasure. And, um, I mean, your book, uh, Hard Labour, exposes, uh, I suppose, the evolving scourge of wage theft across a, a whole range of industries. How big of an issue is this in the university sector specifically? It's very large. It's, um, you know... Put it in some context. Last year, the, the Fair Work Ombudsman, or earlier this year, sorry, the Fair Work Ombudsman listed their priority areas of enforcement and, and, and of concern, and the university sector was lumped in with hospitality and horticulture, which are two of the most notorious sectors in the Australian economy for labour exploitation and wage theft. So it's it's kind of interesting for the sector to be, you know, it's kind of revealing, I guess, for the sector to be lumped in with those. With those, um, with those industries as well. It's, it's a major issue. We've got significant levels of insecure work, people on short-term contracts and casual positions at far higher rates than the overall economy. So it's, it's, it's a big issue. And it's interesting, isn't it, because there's an, uh, I think uh, it'd be fair to say there's an assumption that uh, exploitation or, or, or casualisation, these sorts of issues, affect people that might not have finished high school or, or finished a tertiary uh, qualification, those so, sorts of things, Ben. But we've got this situation where it's the people teaching in these institutions in many instances that are experiencing this. So what is it about... Um, you know, wage theft or exploitation that it seems like it can sort of affect anybody? Well, it's, yeah, no, it's, it's a really interesting point. Like, I think, you know, there's this idea, and I've, got this, I've had this perception as well, of this idea that, you know, university jobs are high-status jobs or good jobs or secure jobs, all that kind of thing. There's, there's, there's a whole lot of things that are bound up with it. But if you look at the working conditions in the sector, you know, they're far more akin to someone who's working in some of the most precarious or insecure work in the country. More like, you know, people from the NTU have described it as, like, gig work. Um, and, look, the pay rates tend to be higher than that, but in terms of the precarity, um, it's got a lot of similarities with that. In terms of the reasons why it's like that, I think, you know, it's it's probably, probably looking back at a years and years of changing the changing model of the, the university, issues around government funding, uh, the university is becoming much more entrepreneurial, um, you know, uh, attracting a lot of students, becoming run much more like businesses than they were, say, maybe a generation or two ago. So you start to see some of the more ruthless practices of corporate Australia, and in many ways the practices in the sector are worse than in corporate Australia. If you look at comparable um, white-collar jobs, um, you don't tend to see 60% of people employed in precarious work or insecure work as a casual or on a limited-term contract. Uh, so it's, it's, it's something of an outlier. 
Um, and I think it goes back to some of that history of, of the changing business model, the changing funding structure and the changing mindset of the people that run the university. And I mean, the university sector has grown quite a lot over the past decades. You know, more people are going to university these days and tied up in that um, orientation towards a more kind of business model is that they've made, particularly some universities, made a lot of money out of international students. In terms of, of wage theft and insecure employment, I mean, is this something that affects kind of all tertiary institutions equally or are some much worse than others in terms of offering staff kind of reasonable pay and, and conditions and the like? It's a good question, and it's often the case with wage theft that the party that is most identified with having done it might not necessarily be the the worst perpetrator. They've just had the the misfortune or bad luck from their perspective of being in court. Um, So in in this case, you know, Melbourne University was, I think, the first university to really uh, be targeted by campaigns around the underpayment of casual staff and, and sessional staff. And so far, it's paid back of the order of $45 million uh, to its staff. Um, so that's, that's on what's been identified in the last two or three years, about $100 million of underpayment. Now, if you ask anyone who works in the sector, no-one thinks that Melbourne University is a particularly bad employer. It's pretty similar to the rest of the sector. They've just, they've just been caught first or, and then probably taken a strategy as well to try to settle all these claims and pay them out and get on the front foot. Other universities you've seen have have thought this, um, are still going through all that process. But there's been underpayments to varying degrees, in Victoria at least, identified at pretty much every university. I think it's a sector-wide um, uh, problem, you know, and, and it goes back to, I guess, the roots of this, which is, you know, the issues around funding, changing business models, changing, you know, change, changing ideas from the people who run, run universities. And, I mean, we have seen uh, at least some universities, you know, calling or working with, with government on the so-called accord for how that business model could change. And are these the sorts of things that sectors can do, Ben, to start to get on top of the what look like quite, you know, sort of structural issues in there in the way that they work that is being uh, affecting workers and affecting the li- livelihoods of the people that are actually running their um, classes and, and lectures and, and so forth? Well, yeah, the, the, I think, you know, the university management argument is that, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of uncertainty about funding. You know, the funding can be, come from a variety of sources, including research grants and, and the like. Um, you know, they need the flexibility from being able to employ people casually, casually and sessionally um, to offset that risk. Um, so, you know, there's something to that argument, um, but they're not the only sector in the, in the country that has uncertain future revenue streams. Um, but the response that they've taken has really put a lot of that risk or a lot of that pressure on, you know, tens of thousands of casual and sessional academics and, and researchers. Um, so that, that's a significant that's a significant issue. And, and for those, those recent pieces I worked on, I spoke to a number of people in that position. And, you know, it's quite... It's a very tough life to have no security beyond a handful of months into the future when you've got work uh, coming up. Um, and, you know, the amounts of money people were making were not, were not much. You know, we're kind of low- to middle-income people um, constantly uncertain about the future three months, six months into the future. Um, and so that's, 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 that's a real problem. I think there's probably been more capacity for the universities 
to employ people in a secure fashion than they've um, than they've done um, because you know um, many of these institutions, particularly the, the big ones, have been really quite profitable. And, and like you said, they've grown significantly over the last decade or two. Um, the combined surplus for the sector in 2021 was over $5 billion. Um, it's not, you know, some individual universities might be struggling, but overall it, it's, in, it's in a healthy position. Yeah, and I mean, some of those those stories that you mentioned that were sort of part of your reporting in the age, I mean, one was working at a supermarket and sort of, you know, working around the clock as well as teaching. Another worked up to, um, what, 39 and a half weeks pregnant and then was back at work two yeah. weeks after giving birth. I mean, you know, these are people just doing a whole lot of extra stuff just to get by um, and not really being able to kind of take, take leave, paid leave and that sort of thing as well. Um, but in terms of, of what's going on at the moment with the NTEU's campaign and the strikes we saw last week, I mean, your book sort of explores as well how you know union membership generally has been on the decline and how increased casualisation might make people kind of less inclined to mobilise together and even find others in similar situations across the sector. Obviously, the university sector is rife with casualisation and, and sessional work. What are kind of you observing ab- about the current nature of the NTEU's campaign, given that you know some universities have acknowledged um, at least some element of, of wage theft in recent recent history. I think it's a really interesting development. Like, like I, I think you know the effectiveness of industrial action is always helped by the, the level of members, a uh, particular workplace or university in this case we have, um, and, and union density is not um, super high in in the tertiary sector. So the ability to to wage an industrial campaign successfully is limited as a result. But in saying that, I think it's an interesting development to see this level of activism, this level of action across multiple universities at the one time. That's not something we've seen for a very long time in much of the economy. Like, like there's been very few prominent strikes or, or prominent industrial action campaigns for years and years now. Um, so in itself, it's an interesting development, and I think it points to the level of issues in the sector. One of the claims from the NTU is to have 80% of people in uh, continuing employment. Um, they're, they're, now, that, that's, there's obviously... That's, that's a significant change to, to the way things are now. But it's, it's an important part of what this is all about. It's, it's that precarity, it's that insecure work, it's that casualisation. Uh, so it's a very significant campaign. Um, and I think, you know, there's, there's a prospect of further industrial action the agreements aren't struck in the coming months. Uh, so, yeah, it, I think it's significant. You know, uh, I mean, I, I learnt from your reporting that more than half of Victorian university staff were on casual or fixed-term contracts. So, yeah, that's a far cry from 80% um, being on continuing in employment. That sort of shows the difference there. I mean, I understand that the... Um, you know, there is a focus on also the hours worked and uh, the university staff rallied around the sort of eight-hour day monument near Trades Hall last last week yeah. and someone noted that this monument is becoming very ironic. And I think, you know, <laughs> with, that, with regards to that, this idea that, you know, that eight hours work, eight hours recreation, eight hours rest type idea that was right there in that the sort of 1800s or whenever it was, Ben, I mean... Do you, do you think that they're, we're losing sight of that as a, as a society? I suppose this is just more of a, a general observation I'm asking for of yours. Yeah, well, I, I think over several decades, like the, the old model, which which really kind of consolidated after World War II of, of 
full-time work um, with entitlements and holidays and all that, it, 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 it started to break down. Um, so you've, you've seen significantly higher, but, you know, staying at a pretty high level, rates of people without those entitlements. And, and the university sector is at the absolute cutting edge of that. And it's a feature of the work that people, you know, what they, what they were calling really essentially like peace rates, which is a bit of a play on what happens in the the fruit sector where you get paid for what you pick and often the rate is set at a ridiculous rate where you can't make a make a living. Similarly, academics are asked to mark, um, you know, essays or assignments or whatever and are, and are asked to mark at such a rate that you just can't do it in the time that you give it. So you have to work many more hours than, you, than, you, than you're being paid for. And so in that sense, yeah, you, you really see do a breakdown of that that monument, which I think was from the 1850s, and at the time was a was a world leading entitlement. There was labour shortages in the in the colonies and uh, the colony of Melbourne, and you know we we, we developed a strong labour move, movement and strong um, strong workplace rights over time. Um, but we've seen the last 20, 30, 40 years really an assault on that, um, and and a, and a shifting in power away from organised labour to employers. And one thing you can know for sure is that the people at universities will know that history, Ben. Yeah, they should. Yeah, well, that's interesting. <laughs> some of them, They've written the books on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's right. Yeah, there's some people who are um, involved in these disputes who have got a long history of this, you know, <laughs> as, you, as you're alluding to, wrote the textbook on industrial relations. So, um, you know, it's maybe it's an unfair fight for the NTU against some of these employers. But anyway, it's, it's, it's a really interesting period. Absolutely. Um, we're going to sort of continue to keep a close eye on it. And, and thank you very much for your reporting on this issue and everything else. It's uh, been a pleasure having you back on the show. Thanks so much. No, great. Thanks for having me. Triple R. And there were two announcements by Labor governments last week which appear to be going in different directions. Uh, The first was by the Northern Territory Government to allow for an onshore gas industry to set up in the Beedaloo Basin, which is about 500k southeast of Darwin and also proceeding in opposition to the wishes of the traditional owner groups in that area. And the other announcement was from the Federal Labor Government to establish a net zero authority enshrined in law and its job is going to be making sure the energy transition is coordinated, uh, that it's orderly and fair. And Cam Walker is with us from Friends of the Earth. And Cam, it's great to have you there. And can we start with what looks like the good news, uh, the Net Zero Authority? What do you see this uh, authority doing for Australia? Yeah, it's a really great announcement. We campaigned for several years for a just transition authority and uh, what has been announced is slightly differently named. So it's the National Net Zero Authority, but it has the same job. Uh, so it's to ensure that workers and the industries and their communities um, that have been powering Australia all these years, particularly through coal, aren't left behind. And it's really great because the, the previous federal government was in denial about climate change and it was certainly doing everything it could pretty much to block the transition to clean energy. And this government at least gets it and is uh, uh, driving um, the way that transition will work. And once we talk about the Beedaloo Basin, we'll, we'll understand or unpack some of the complexities of that and the inconsistencies. But, you know, the authority is great. Um, 
whenever an industry changes, and if you throw your mind back to the car industry, you know, when basically manufacturing went offshore, it was a disaster for workers. When transformation happens, you need to have a government plan and you need to have commitment and you need to have money to back it up. So it's really good. The transformation is underway already and it's happening faster than anyone expected and we can't leave it up to the market. We need government intervention and particularly we need coordination because it's very good things if you think in Victoria, you know, at the regional level but then at the state level and then at the federal level and then you've got unions, you've got First Nations people, um, you've got the industry groups, you've got community groups. We need to bring them together to develop really good plans for transformation. It seems like a a no-brainer to have a plan for addressing something that's kind of happening anyway but in in terms of of the Net Zero Authority, which is, you know, it's taken a long time to to get to this point, what, what role do you see it playing? I mean, in terms of kind of direct government intervention versus supporting industries and and communities to, uh, you know, essentially manage that sort of transition themselves, what kind of tangibly will or, or could it look like? Well, it needs to work directly with all those stakeholders that I mentioned before and then coordinate programs across government because what's happening is because of the failure of the coalition when they were in federal power, people at the state and regional level just got on with the transition. So now it's very much out of sync. So this is hopefully aligning what the federal government is doing at the continental level with what the state governments are doing with what the regional authorities. So in Victoria we have, for instance, the Latrobe Valley authority so it's realigning all those things it should we shouldn't have this problem but unfortunately that's the legacy we're dealing with um i think what's really significant is it's they're going to set up an agency from uh, the start of the new financial year and it will sit within the department of prime minister and cabinet so that indicates that they're taking it really seriously they're not just kind of shunting it off into a department somewhere uh obviously the proof will always be in the pudding but um the fact that they are wanting to move rapidly to coordinate programs across government to support the regions to uh, basically attract uh, new clean energy options is a you know a really good start it's good policy it should have happened five years ago but um it is great that it's finally happening now yeah and they, they point out too that they're going to work to make it look attractive to private investment as well to, to grow industries in, in certain areas. And, I mean, Friends of the Earth has been working in the Latrobe Valley for years and calling, as you say, for something like this for a long time. Is it coming, you know, if it's even if it's five years late, is, is it going to come too late for some parts of those communities, Cam, where we've already seen a lot of industry close down? Or is, you know, is it in time enough that it's going to make a difference in, in somewhere like the Latrobe Valley? It will help in the Latrobe Valley. Victoria got ahead of the curve because of the failure of the federal coalition government. So we have, for instance, the Latrobe Valley Authority is already in place and we have uh, money for transition and we have a government that is paying attention there. So um, luckily Victoria is well ahead of the game. But as we all know, you know, there's a long history in the Latrobe Valley. When Jeff Kennett was the Premier, he privatised the State Electricity Commission. The current government is going to rebuild it, but not in the form that it was before. And that caused thousands of job losses in the valley, and that's still impacting on the Latrobe Valley today. So it is a a community that has been hit really hard by government decisions. 
And it's good that finally there are good government decisions that are helping them to transition. And that's why we've been working on projects like the Delburn Wind Project up in the Streslecky Ranges, which will be within view of uh, some of the open cuts in the valley. We're really supportive of the Star of the South, the Offshore Wind Project. We're really excited by the decommissioning industry, that is same-sector jobs for oil and gas workers who live in Gippsland. Like, we can see a pathway to good union jobs in the future, and we're really heartened by the way things are aligning and the, the sense of goodwill and the sense of getting on with it that's happening in Victoria. And, I mean, amid all of that, um, we did see a change last week um, set to take place in, in the Northern Territory with um, the Northern Territory government paving the way for fracking to occur in the Beetaloo Basin. There's been, you know, long-standing community opposition to this and from traditional owners up there. There was, of course, previously a ban on, on fracking um, in the NT as well. So how do you kind of square this decision with what's going on at the federal level with trying to kind of incentivise that transition to renewables? It's a shocker of a decision and we know that the time for new gas is over and we certainly know that the time for new fracked gas is well over. So it really is a shocker of a decision um, and it does highlight the inconsistency that do exist within the federal government, even though this was a, a Northern Territory government decision. Um, there was a moratorium, as you say, because of community opposition and because of First Nation opposition. You know, grassroots power gets the results. We have a permanent fracking ban here in Victoria because people got mobilised and stayed mobilised and it's a very bad decision it goes against the climate science um, it's going to be really bad for the pastoralists up there, been opposed by First Nations people um, and it's going to be bad for water so um, it's not over yet basically what's happened is the Northern Territory Government has backed the develop this massive development in the Beetaloo Basin and they're saying that from next year they expect the first applications for commercial development um, there's a, a very deep conversation at present around what rights traditional owners do have to actually veto these sort of projects and they don't have it at the exploration phase but hopefully they have more power uh, as it moves towards commercialisation uh, but it's very clear that the impacts um, on that area uh, will be really intense. There's a very deep physical footprint from these sort of projects and already we're seeing every two by two kilometres drill pads uh, with wells uh, in the exploration Phase, you know, that imagine that if that's commercialised at scale, the impacts, the industrialisation in this really important area of the top end will be absolutely massive, leaving aside the climate change impacts, which are also going to be massive. And, I mean, there was a lot of discussion around gas and the gas industry and how much it might be able to expand when we were seeing the, the Greens, you know, pushing the Labor government to improve the safeguard mechanism. And yep. uh, so how is that going to have any influence here around how expansive, if it does proceed, and it sounds like, you know, the community opposition might knock it off anyway, but if it does proceed, yep. how expansive they can be there in the Northern Territory, the gas industry? Yes, so one of the dilemmas is the emissions aren't being dealt with by the Northern Territory Government and it will kind of come under the new federal government uh, so-called uh, safeguard mechanism scheme. So whether that works or not, this has been, you know, the, the, the heat in the debate uh, between the Greens and the ALP federally is, well, does the safeguard mechanism do some good things, which is put a, a, a roof and then 
ratchet down the emissions from the, the largest corporate emitters in the planet while allowing new fossil fuel and gas. So this is now where the rubber hits the road in terms of finding out whether it is going to actually do anything good. Um, so that will play out in the next couple of months. And it's very clear there are the possibility of legal challenges. And it's also very clear that there's this profound shift in shareholder activism where companies more and more are pulling away from LNG investments and, and particularly fracked gas investments. So there's many moving parts still and hopefully um, this proposal to open up the Beagaloo Basin can still be defeated. The public image of gas companies uh, is really changed. Uh, they were for a long time considered you know, vital to the energy transition actually. There was a whole sort of period there in the 90s and early 2000s where they were seen as the sort of you know, step jump, I guess, to the to renewables as those technologies were being developed. But now there's massive concerns about r- the rising cost of domestic gas, let alone exploration as well for for new gas fields. Cam, I mean, what's what's changed? Why has that changed so much? The the image, I guess, of of gas companies in Australia. I think a big part of it is the previous coalition governments were so keen to set up an export LNG industry and a vast amount of the gas we produce is shipped offshore, which means that, in effect, us as domestic consumers, if we're using gas in our homes, we're competing on the international market. And we know that with the war in Ukraine, global fossil fuel prices keep going up. So we're we're locked into this situation because of the framework of the industry. We are competing internationally. And the way state governments have sought to kind of offset that, and particularly in WA, is to have a a, a state reserve, so a a percentage of gas you produce locally need to be kept for the domestic market, the theory being that puts a cap on the price rises that are happening. But the fact is gas is a a fossil gas. It's a limited resource. It's going to run out. And we know that when something starts to run out, it becomes more expensive. So there's only one way the prices of gas can go. And we know that new build... um, Renewables combined with electricity, which is uh, sorry, combined with batteries, which is dis- what they call dispatchable uh, energy, is much cheaper than gas. So, the narrative of gas as a transition uh, fuel, as you say, is something from the 90s. It's now long gone, but the industry seeks to push itself as being green and helping to bridge into the, the clean future. But I think it's interesting that more and more they're spending their um, their marketing spend on telling people how good they are on renewable energy, and that's because they know which way the wind is blowing. Cam Walker's our guest. He's with Friends of the Earth, and there's a lot going on in environment and climate news um, at the moment. Cam, just if we turn international just for a moment, there was a, a report released in the past couple of weeks from um, the UN agency, the World Meteorological Organization. Sorry, tongue twister. Um, their state of the global climate reports um, really revealed some, you know, quite devastating news around um, uh, glaciers melting at sort of a, a record pace and the past eight years being the hottest on record as well. So all kind of bad news for the, for the environment. What do you make of that? Look, I read a lot of climate science and it's relentlessly depressing and, you know, I'm a professional optimist because there's no point telling people we're all doomed. Uh, but the reading of that report, it's easy to find. It's called The State of the Global Climate 2022. It's the WMO website. It really is, you know, as they say, a sobering read. It is really depressing because 
as we lose glaciers and and the ice at the Arctic and the Antarctic, which contains a lot of our fresh water and what they call the third pole, which is the Himalayan mountains, which have uh, such a high amount of water, as that is being lost and as it's being lost faster, the WMO report is very clear that this will go on for thousands of years. So even if we stop creating greenhouse gases tomorrow, we are locked into global warming for a very long time. So it is a really distressing read. It does talk about sea level rise and then that has climate displacement impact. But the loss of the glaciers really is quite staggering. Yeah, I must say, Cam, I'm also a professional optimist and work in sort of climate in my day job and I, you know, don't, not many things kind of stop me and make me go, Ugh. but the glacier melting did uh, because it, you know, in our glaciers are two-thirds of the world's fresh water and just thinking, you know, the whole nations are fed with clean water from melting glaciers, you know, that sort of cycle of, of freezing and melting that happens um, through the year, through seasons and the like. And I think... The idea that these are millions of years old, these glaciers and melting now, yeah, really does make you make you really. Uh. Um, but uh, um, with regards to our alpine areas, I know Friends of the Earth has been looking at snow gums, and uh, you know, just really quickly, what are, what are you finding there? And I guess what is it that we could do to make sure that they uh, su- survive the changes that we're seeing? Yeah, so we've seen the alpine ash forests are starting to move into a state of ecological collapse and we've realised it's the same with the snow gum woodland. So if you've been up, you know, to any of the ski resorts, you've seen the snow gums. That's a combination of climate. Well, it's driven by climate change, which is making fire seasons uh, leading to fires more frequently and more intense. And there's also a native beetle, which is uh, able to survive more because the, the winters aren't as cold and the summers are longer and causing drought stress on the trees and we are witnessing localised ecological collapse of snow gum woodlands and the problem is no one is tracking it. We do what's called citizen science and we go out and map these areas but what we are doing is asking the Victorian government to do an urgent ecological assessment of the state of the snow gum woodlands and we're calling on the Victorian Environment Minister Ingrid Stitt to do this. It wouldn't cost a lot of money, it could be done in-house but we need to see what's going on, where is that ecosystem going and how do we need to intervene. And we feel that the logical way to intervene is the science says these forests will recover if you take fire out of them for about 40 years or more. So the secret to allow the snow gums to recover is basically to exclude fire for a set period of time. Well, um, yeah, hopefully they're listening. Uh, governments do listen to Triple R, and also uh, we've got a budget coming up in Victoria, so got our fingers crossed for that, and, of course, the federal budget tomorrow. So let's see what comes there too. Cam, thanks uh, for speaking with us again. We'll catch you in about a month's time. Thanks. Always good to have a chat. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. And cost of living relief will be coming in the federal budget for the most vulnerable, according to the federal uh, federal government. And things like energy bills, rents, uh, food costs, uh, are the kinds of things stressing thousands of people's home budgets. And these have been very much in focus uh, by ACOS, uh, which is the peak body for the groups that are representing and supporting the most vulnerable Australians. And Edwina McDonald is their deputy CEO. And it's great to have you there, Edwina. Good morning. 
Good morning. Thanks for having me on the show. Our absolute pleasure. And we've heard this morning that there's more than $14 billion being directed towards cost of living relief. What do we know so far about what that might include? Look, we are really waiting to see a lot more of of the detail as to uh, where that will be going. Um, We've certainly heard there'll be an energy um, bills relief package as part of that. Uh, And we're also anticipating to see something around um, income support, uh, but we don't have the detail of that. We have just had this morning actually a really welcome announcement that is that um, the eligibility rate for... um, Single parents will be changing, so for single parents accessing single um, the parenting payment single income support package, um, that, that, that the age of eligibility for children um, will now lift from, from 8 to, to 14. Uh, and, and this is something um, that, that previously was 16. It should never have been reduced uh, to, to 8, uh, and it's really welcome that we're restoring justice and dignity for, for single parents and their, their children as part of that. And, I mean, is it clear who the vulnerable groups are that the government's thinking of with regards to this package, $14.6 billion package that we're starting to hear about, Edwina? Look, I I think we've heard the government talk about single parents and we've heard them talk about um, older people as well. Uh, One thing that we look to is the report of the Economic Inclusion Advisory Committee, which is the government's uh, government-appointed independent committee to advise the, the government around economic inclusion. Um, and, and while it identified a number of, um, of groups, um, also people with disability, uh, younger people, uh, people with caring responsibilities, uh, that committee found that the first priority, the first thing that needs to happen in order to, to address um, you know, better economic inclusion is to, to lift the, the rate of income support, job seeker, youth allowance and, and related payments to ensure that people... Um, have just uh, enough income to afford the basics. Yeah, and I mean, you've one of um, a number of groups who have been calling for a substantial raise to JobSeeker for some mm-hmm. time. We have heard that it, you know it looks like it'll be raised for people over fifty-five, and we've heard that you know some Labor MPs have kind of broken ranks, I suppose, and, and gone sort of public in their calls for a rise to that rate generally. Uh, I mean, how important is it, do you think, given that the current cost of living pressures, that that rate in particular is is raised and um, I, I guess also your thoughts on targeting just those who are over 55 who, you know, do mm. often experience particular difficulties, particularly older women. Yeah, look, I mean, we can't understate just how important this is right now. We've, we've heard it from the Government's Economic Inclusion Advisory Committee. We've heard it from, the, you know, all you know, leading economists, Danielle Woods, Chris Richardson. We've heard it from the former Secretary of Treasury, Ken Henry, just that we're absolutely now to be, to be addressing this um, you know, we can't continue to, to have policies that are uh, leaving people hungry, you know, making people homeless. It's just now it's, it's the time that we need to be addressing this and, and that urgency, I think, can't be understated. Uh, in terms of, of what will be in there, I guess there's been a lot of speculation and we don't yet have anything confirmed. There was um, this speculation around something something for over, over 55 and certainly we know that um, there are um, a, a large proportion of, of people who... Uh, experiencing long-term unemployment uh, in an older age bracket, but we also know that we need to, to increase incomes for all. Uh, that we can't uh, leave young people, um, you know, leave, leave people with caring responsibilities, people experiencing disability and illness uh, behind. And so we're really looking for that income um, support increase across the board. We have had some speculation 
over the weekend and again today that there is an increase in there across the board in addition to this higher increase over 55, uh, but, but yet to have anything confirmed. Wait and so see. we'll obviously be <laughs> wait and see closely watching that tomorrow night. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, the, the speculation and also when we see some of the the government backbenchers, you know, really putting their name to community campaigns on different issues. And is this organic, do you think, Edwina, that sort of thing where you've got pressure coming internally and then externally and all this sort of stuff? Um, it, I, I guess it's part of the, the, the politics of everything. But is, you know, is this something the government would welcome? Do you think pressure coming from everywhere on some of these decisions because they keep telling us you know they can't do everything in this budget we're looking at it that sort of thing you know what what are your thoughts around the politics of it Hmm. I mean I think it's certainly you know it's 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 not something I imagine they're welcome because you know it does put them in a difficult position and they are you know we're in a difficult economic context but I think the fact that we're hearing it so loud and so clear now uh, actually demonstrates what's been happening over I mean over decades of neglect um, and these conversations aren't new. They've been uh, high profile over the, the last couple of weeks, uh, but we've been seeing this core for some time. We know that there have been um, members of the ALP party, you know, current backbenchers, actually current uh, frontbenchers, people in the Cabinet, in the Ministry when they were in opposition, were out very publicly calling for these increases and acknowledging the urgency of of the increases as well. And so this is a, an ongoing conversation and the fact that we have so many people out publicly now just demonstrates uh, the, the urgency and the need need to address this. And, and I think one thing that I really want to acknowledge is that we've had um, particularly people who, who are impacted, people who are receiving income support, speaking really publicly about that. And I, I think it's, you know, they're, they're doing this, they're speaking publicly and sharing the realities of what's going on for them, um, which includes going to bed hungry, uh, you know, living without working light bulbs, pretending that they've eaten to their children, going to bed early to save energy bills, moving into tents and parks, um, and sharing the severe mental anguish that, that all of this creates as well. And, and I think that's incredibly uh, brave and, and powerful, the advocacy that we're seeing from people. But we also have to ask the question as to, as to how many of these stories need to be shared, how many more people need to experience this and to go public with this before we'll have political leaders who will act to end poverty uh, in what is one of the wealthiest countries in the world. Yeah. And look, I guess one of the challenges around policymaking generally and, and at budget time is, is trying to address issues in the here and now and sort of planning for the longer term too. And if we sort of turn to yeah. housing for a moment, I mean, you know, rents yeah. have been skyrocketing in places all across the country. Obviously, home ownership is, is increasingly out of reach for a large number of people. There's been negotiations ongoing for a little while around the Housing Australia Future Fund, um, which yeah. kind of involves $10 billion towards building 30000 homes, um, affordable homes over the next um, five years. There's a bunch of other stuff bound up in that as well. But what's your sense of, of the direction we're moving in in relation to the housing issue? Look, I mean, I think that that is a welcome first step, but it's really clear that, that it's not uh, enough to meet the, the demand and the anticipated demand around social housing. Uh, so so we're, we, um, you know, along with many others, and, and including the, the Everybody's Home campaign, uh, are calling for um, increased social housing supply that, that would see 25,000 dwellings of, of social housing investment a year um, over the next 10 years. So we need a, a significantly larger investment than what we've currently got. And, 
and we're urging that as, as these negotiations continue, that the government uh, seek to get, get the most out of those negotiations to ensure that we do further increase that housing supply. Uh, Edwina McDonald's our guest. She's Deputy CEO of ACOS. And ACOS represents, is a peak body representing so social services groups, um, and, you know, that's the acronym, uh, it stands for. And we are seeing money being put towards the wages for community organisations that are providing mm. services. And, you know, through the pandemic and, and just attracting volunteers, we know there's just been so much uh, going on in the social services sector. Is this kind of commitment and funding input go, going to do enough, do you think, Edwina, to make sure that those agencies that are so important to those experiencing homelessness, uh, uh, food insecurity, those sorts of things, mm. get the support and services that they, they need? We've seen this announcement of $11 billion to go into aged care and that will help finance the increase of 15% um, of, of, uh, to wages in aged care and that's really welcome announcement. Um, we, we do need to see across the board investment to, to support um, you know, increased wages. We are, people within our sector are uh, some of the on the lowest wages as well, many on minimum wage, and so seeing an increase to that is really important to, to boosting the incomes of um, low-income workers. But also, you know, we know that if we have uh, workers that are paid well and treated well, and services that are funded sufficiently in order to, to pay their workers um, well, we will we will all benefit from better services. Um, so certainly, we'll be looking for that. And one of the key things there is to, to look for. Uh, you know, proper and transparent indexation of funding so that services funding is going up, you know, with the, with the wage increases, with the CPI increases to make sure that um, services can be delivered to those who need them. Uh, this is an election commitment, actually, from, from the government. Um, so, you know, we're, we'll be looking to see what they do there and continuing to work with them to see that one implemented. And we're coming up to the one-year anniversary of this government being in power, but, of course, there's been really high inflation over that time and a whole bunch of challenges that, um, uh, you know, governments, countries all around the world are dealing with. From where you sit and the kind of work that you do, um, how kind of equipped do you feel that we are to, to properly address those challenges come this budget when it's delivered tomorrow? Look, I mean, I, I think we're in a strong position. We're, we're hearing that the economic outlook is, is in, in the shorter term, at least better than, than was anticipated. Um, and certainly, you know, we can see ways to, to, to fund some of these challenges as well. I mean, the starting point for us would be um, looking at statutory tax cuts. That's $20 billion a year that will overwhelmingly benefit um, high income earners, the top 20% of income earners, mostly men. Uh, and if we were to, to take those away, um, we could easily pay for these policies that would ensure that, that everyone could have enough to, to cover the basics. Um, so certainly, you know, we've got many ideas about how we could look at um, increasing the revenue that we need in order to be able to fund these essential safety nets and services that, that we all benefit from. Edwina, we'll leave it there. We know you've got a really busy day and uh, I guess you know we don't want to sit here and speculate all day either. We'll wait till tomorrow night and hopefully we can catch you up again soon and, and see what, what sort of um, funding we will start to see or spending we'll start to see from government on some of these really important issues. Thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.